Well, this morning we come in our study of the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 19. And we are in a period of transition where Jesus has been teaching and healing for for several years now, and he's beginning to transition to the time when he'll go to Jerusalem and suffer, be betrayed, suffer, bleed, and die. This morning we come to a passage that, as as soon as I read it, I I think will pique our attention, um, because it has to do with divorce and remarriage, something that's touched all of us in one way or another. Let's listen as we hear God's word. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 12. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We need to pray and ask for understanding. Oh God, we recognize that in us is the same hardness of heart that Jesus references. We come to this passage with likely many of us with years of questions or hearing various opinions, different positions. We're asking, oh God, this morning that you will clear away the clutter of our minds that you will help us by your spirit to let us approach your word fresh and that your spirit who gave this word would be dominant in our hearts and minds this day. May you subdue every thought raised up against the knowledge of Christ and of the truth. And may you grant us 
the same heart and attitude of our Lord himself. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage has our attention this morning. If we came in sleepy, it's likely that as soon as I read this passage, suddenly our interest has peaked. We have questions. We wonder, what's the preacher going to say? Where's he going to fall on this sticky issue? We have questions. And it's reasonable to a degree because divorce is a very prevalent reality in many of our lives. Here this morning, some have been divorced and they know that or their parents were divorced. Divorce has touched all of our lives. Then the question of whether it's appropriate after one is divorced, under what circumstances can a Christian be remarried and what is pleasing to God? People want to know. And that is reasonable to a degree. And I hope that this morning perhaps there will be some answers given to some of those questions we might have. However, and however unwittingly, we are likely committing the same error of the Pharisees and disciples in their interaction with Jesus on this issue. Because we're coming to hear Jesus, as it were, in the Bible, and just like the Pharisees on one side or the disciples on the other side, we want to know, and Jesus had better get it right. His position better line up with ours, or in this case, the reality is, now separated by several thousand years, the preacher better get it right. The preacher or the teacher, and presumably Jesus, better be practical on this issue. He better be realistic. He should be compassionate or firm, depending on your particular circumstances or opinion, preference. And if the preacher, the pastor, doesn't get the, doesn't present the position that we think Jesus ought to have had, (laughs) pity the preacher. Right? Oh man, this is a lightning rod issue. And I've been a pastor for a few years now and few issues engender the kind of passion and, and anger or resentment or fears and anxieties as this one does. Passions run high and understandably so around this issue. But do you see what I'm saying right up, up front? We're going to study the text, but do you see here Can I tell you actually that the gospel of Matthew here is actually not primarily concerned with the issue of divorce and remarriage. It's not why that was first here. This is the gospel of Christ. The the lens of the gospel of Matthew is continually upon Jesus. We're learning about him. We're learning about his character. 
We're seeing him, how he responds to wicked and evil men and how he lives among us. The focus is on Jesus and on what's pleasing to God. But we come as we hear the text and immediately, almost for many of us, I don't want to presume all of us, we are consumed with the particulars of how Jesus or this pastor is going to handle this particular issue. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing and the attitude of the disciples. They could rise no higher than some of the pressing immediate concerns, real as they are, related to divorce and remarriage. So this morning I want to help you, I hope, by stepping back a little bit and seeing the overall intent of the Holy Spirit. I wanted to look with you this morning at the setting. If you're taking notes, we're just going to kind of look at this passage from a few different vantage points. We're going to consider, first of all, the setting of this interaction. I mean the physical, the, the geographical, but I mean the historical, cultural. We're going to look for a few moments at the response of Jesus, and, and that really is where the biggest lesson is for us this morning, I think, is, is not even so much in the particulars of what Jesus says, but Jesus' demeanor and how he responds. We're going to look at his response. We're going to look thirdly at the disciples' response. They have, a, they have an immediate reaction to what Jesus teaches, And then in closing, I hope to consider a few pastoral applications for us, okay? So first of all, let's consider the setting. We're told in in verse 1 that Jesus, after he had finished these words, what words? Do you remember Matthew 18? I know it's been a few weeks now. Matthew 18, Jesus was teaching there about... um, the seriousness of causing another disciple to stumble, woe to the world for its opposition to the little ones. Remember, Jesus was talking about humility and the preeminent value, importance of humility in the kingdom of God. Jesus gave instructions of how sin is to be dealt with among his people in the church. And then Jesus taught powerfully on the need and nature for forgiveness, the nature of forgiveness, that we are to forgive others as God, our Heavenly Father, has forgiven us. And verse 35, chapter 18, very sobering words, my Heavenly Father will do also the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. Jesus is always blowing through the surface concerns, the surface issues, and somehow he always gets to the heart. It's, this is the setting immediately following this teaching on the nature of the kingdom, of the need for humility, of addressing sin in the church and among his people and forgiveness, and the warning of the necessity of forgiveness. This is the immediate context or setting and Jesus had left the northern region of Galilee and was making his way down to Judea beyond the Jordan. And at this point, he's still popular with a, a very fragile surface kind of popularity. Verse 2 tells us 
large crowds followed him. And in his mercy and in his kindness and in fulfillment of his, of his mission as the messianic servant, he's healing men and women, demonstrating the power of God, but also demonstrating his compassion. And however we end up this morning, and whatever Jesus teaches about divorce and remarriage, let no one dare to charge Jesus with somehow being lacking compassion as he receives not tens, not hundreds, but thousands of broken men and women, boys and girls, and receives them compassionately, gives them time, exhausts himself in in considering their case and healing them, putting his hand upon them, showing the love of God toward them. There is no one who has walked the planet who is compassionate as this man. Jesus, by this time, as we consider the setting, has actually already addressed the issue of divorce and remarriage. It's a long time ago for us. It's back in chapter 5. If you want to look, verses 31 and 32, Jesus essentially says the same thing there in the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. But time has passed. It's it's about two and a half or more years into Jesus's ministry. And the Pharisees, who by this point hate him, they despise him. They are, they are looking for any and every opportunity to catch him and to embarrass him in front of the crowds. They, they see how the crowds are following him and there's this sense Building that maybe, just maybe, this, this is this promised messianic figure. They hate him, they despise him, they loathe him, they want to take him out. And so publicly, they bring forward what is a perennial sensitive subject. They know that the crowds are split on this issue. They know that that people have different, strong different opinions on this matter of, of whether divorce is justified in any case or only in some cases, and then whether if someone's divorced, whether in what circumstances it's appropriate for them to be remarried. It's all passions run high, and, and we know they do because maybe we can almost feel it in the room this morning a little bit. So they're thinking that if they can, they can catch Jesus in a dilemma, they can put a halt to his increasing popularity by bringing up the divorce and remarriage issue. You know. I mean, it's such an issue in our day that for, for some, it's, it's, it's one of the top five factors on which they'll attend a church. What's your position on divorce and remarriage? And that's good and reasonable for a church to have a position, to be clear in that, and I hope that we are. But I just mention that to say how back then and today, it is a, it is a thorny issue, as we say. And they are, the Pharisees are hoping that they can pierce Jesus on that thorny issue. They want him run through on the horns of a dilemma. There were 
as we continue to consider the setting in that time, we know today from historical records that there were two very well-known rabbis who had very different opinions. One who taught that divorce was only acceptable in cases where, where, where the spouse, one of the spouses was guilty of sexual infidelity. The other rabbi had a very broad interpretation of the Old Testament, and the, the, the long and short of it was, if one followed his teaching, basically, he taught what the Pharisees say here, that a man may divorce his wife for any reason at all, verse 3. So the one rabbi taught, no, divorce is only permissible under clear cases of, of sexual infidelity, immorality. The other taught, well, you know, God allows divorce for just about anything at all. Divorce was well known in the culture of that day, just as it is in ours. And so among that crowd, there would have been those who were, had been divorced themselves or, or had loved ones who were divorced, many who were remarried. And, and so they aimed to catch Jesus in a bind. The implications of his answer, one way or the other, the Pharisees suspected, would either validate how Jesus answered the question would either validate or condemn an entire generation. The Pharisees are not really interested in what Jesus thinks on the subject. They are not really curious about his position. They just want to see him struggle and squirm and be cast down in the opinion of the crowds by how he answers the thorny Question, surra- question surrounding divorce and remarriage. So that's the setting. Secondly, this morning, let's look at the response of Jesus. We don't have a video of the scene. There's no recording. And that's intentional, by the way. <laughs> I've said this to you before. It's, it's not as though God... Uh, now that we have the written Bible, is thinking today, oh, if only I'd had that great technology back then. It would have been so much better. It would have been so much more clear. No, this is intentional. So the text is clear. God gave us a text for a reason. So, But we can't see Jesus' face, per se. But have you noticed, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, as the Pharisees and religious leaders come to Jesus and they try to present him with one difficult, seemingly impossible question after another, that you get the impression that Jesus is, isn't flustered, ever. He's not phased. He, he's not nervous. He's not anxious. There's no um, there's no but, there's no stall, there's no let me think about it and get back to you. That's what I've said often when people have come to me with a difficult question. That's a good question. I'd like to take a little time about that, think about that, and get back to you. He never does that. 
He doesn't seem really overly concerned or anxious at all. He seems oblivious. If it's a trap, it seems that he's oblivious to the trap. He's, he's just fearless. He's undaunted. He's unfazed by it all. How do we understand this? This is a very sensitive issue. This is a very important issue. And how is it that Jesus can answer so straightforwardly? Is he lacking compassion? Is he the cold, intellectual kind of guy? No, not at all. It's more than evident that he's compassionate. It's more than evident that he understands that the people he's working with are all sinners, all broken people. It's very clear he understands that. So that's not it. It's it's not that he lacks compassion. It's not that he's insensitive to the situation or the practicalities of the situation. It's not that he's a stoic, type A kind of personality, not really a people person. It's none of these things. Rather, and if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. Jesus is consumed with a passion and a burden that is alien and strange to us in our sinful nature. That's how you you understand his response. He is consumed with a burden, with a passion. What is that? He is consumed with the fear of God, his Father, the commandments of God, his Father, and pleasing his Heavenly Father. Those are all the same things, just one different ways of saying the same thing. He reveres his Heavenly Father. He adores, honors, reverences his heavenly Father. The commandments of God, his Father, are his only concern. He wants nothing other than to please his heavenly Father. If you haven't picked up on it by now, he could care less about pleasing the crowd. That is, that is so countercultural to our society. I mean, you get the emails, right? Or the, <laughs> all kinds. I mean, the companies are just desperate to get our opinion because they're clamoring to please us. I mean, you, you can go get your car washed or, I mean, I don't know, anything. And, you know, go buy dog food. And, and the company, I'm sure not a certain company that sells dog food, but other companies, they... How was your experience buying dog food for your pet? On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate it? Were you helped in the... This is the culture we live in. And so, understandably, we begin to think, oh, pleasing us and making sure the customer is happy is the ultimate. And we're jarred, we should be, we should be shocked that Jesus has absolutely not even a thought about it. He could care less. Doesn't register. Not even there. Doesn't even factor in. 
there's no evidence that he factors in whatsoever how his answer is going to affect his popularity or whether it's going to please anybody. Wow. How, how do you explain that? How do you understand that? Fear of God. There's something else that consumes his heart. There's an overarching burden that trumps all other concerns, overwhelms all other concerns, pushes out all other concerns. There's only one question for Jesus. What is pleasing to my heavenly Father? Period. Question mark. And for Jesus, there is only one place that he goes to to learn what is pleasing to his heavenly father. Not the latest evangelical opinion poll. Not to the latest papers from a psychological department, a local university. Not the Christian radio program. He doesn't go any of these places. Some of those things aren't inherently bad. But he goes to one place alone to determine what is pleasing to his heavenly father, to the written revelation of God. See how he does it? Jesus, the son of God, whenever he's faced with a situation, always, always, well, what do the scriptures say? Is it not written? He always, always goes back because he just wants to please his heavenly father. That is the only concern there is, and there's only one place where he learns what is pleasing to his heavenly father. It is authoritative, it is binding, it is exclusive, it is singular, it it doesn't have any other parallels as far as authority to the scriptures and the scriptures alone. There's only one question for Jesus, only one concern, what is pleasing to God? That's so foreign to us. We know that should be the question, but it's just so foreign to us. As we come to the issue of divorce and remarriage, for many of us at least, that's not the first question. It's, well, what about, or uh, there's all kinds of other concerns, and some of them may be valid. What about my family? What about my parents? What about me? What about my past? What about this very difficult relationship? What, what about abuse? What about on goes? There's one concern for Jesus. What's pleasing to his heavenly father. So Jesus begins in Matthew 19 in his answer, verse 4, by going back to Genesis. And he says, Notice that Jesus is rebuking them, perhaps rebuking us. Have you not read? Have you not read? You're the religious leaders of Israel. You're the teachers. Have you read your Bible? Basically, Jesus is saying. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Verse 4. Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1 verse 27. And as an aside, here is clear teaching on the issue of transgenderism and gender identity and all that. 
if it isn't clear by now that this is absolute, that God has created male and female, binary, one of two options, that's it, end of story and discussion, and yes, we will die on that mountain. And no, listen very carefully, especially younger people who may be swayed, you cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and claim to love God and turn away from his clear plan and order. This is, this is the issue of the day. We know we're immersed in it, especially here. We're right in the thick of it. And this is clear. And like Jesus, we don't have to get worked up or anxious about it. This is just the way it is. We don't need to have a conversation. We don't need more understanding. God created men and women, boys and girls, male and female. And his design is very, very good. He starts by going back to Genesis, back to the very beginning. He points out that God created Adam and Eve, male and female. And if you want to turn back there with me for a moment, just to refresh our memories, in Genesis chapter 2, as we learn of the creation of woman, of Eve, Verse 21, Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why a rib? You ever asked that question, thought about that? Why a rib? I don't know exactly. I'm not sure that anybody knows exactly, but if you're talking about trying to impress upon Men and women, how close the union of a husband and wife is, you can't get much closer than actually pulling the rib out of a guy. Here, right side by side. God could have created woman from the dust, just like he created Adam from the dust, and like all the other creatures, out of just the word of his mouth. But God chose in his wisdom and his sovereignty to create woman from the man's rib, at least expressing in some way the closeness, the similarity between men and women in many respects, and yet the diversity and the distinctness. And that God created Adam and Eve to be husband and wife, that marriage is by design of God. It's not a cultural creation, as many are saying it is today. It's not something you get around to if you're a believer after you've lived together for a while and tested it out. By the way, even the most liberal sociological studies, you can check this out, Google it, 
will tell you that the greatest rate of, of uh, longest longevity in marriage are for those who were married young and never lived together. Uh, 25 years ago, I did a paper on what was called then and is still around today called the cohabitation effect. And this, so this idea that you see this whole generation vying, and maybe some of you did, that, oh, if we just live together for months, years, get to know each other, see if this works, then we'll get married. You actually up your chances of divorce astronomically so that even in secular sociological literature, it's called the cohabitation effect. Doesn't mean if you live together before Christ or before, doesn't mean that you're destined to divorce. Not saying that, but you just need to know that the evidence doesn't wash with so many of the common understandings of our generation that maybe on the surface makes sense, but that fly in the face of the plan of God. He created male and female, Adam and Eve, and he brought them together in union. And, and so close is the union that they are considered one flesh. They are two walking people, but they are, they are one flesh. And not only as a husband and wife come together in intimacy, but that bond, that covenant between a husband and wife is in sight of God as though they are one. Our day and age treats it like just an afterthought, and if you get around to it, okay, and, and if you want to end it, okay. There's, there's no understanding of this oneness, but that is God's design, and Jesus points back to it. It's very clear that Divorce for any reason at all, which the Pharisees asked him about up in verse 3, is unthinkable in light of Genesis chapter 2. They are one flesh. No, there is not divorce allowable for any reason at all. No, because you just don't like the person or the person's irritable or, or on and on it goes, the reasons that are raised up today they are no longer two says jesus verse six but one flesh and these are very serious words that jesus these are the words of jesus and they are off they are read or spoken at a traditional wedding service what god has joined together let no man separate that is that is we need to recapture the very the seriousness of that. That's not something that the Church of England came up into in its prayer book. Those are the words of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a solemn, stern command. What God has joined. Marriage is God's plan, God's design. What God has put together, don't you dare, oh little man or little woman, think that you can put apart it's a serious severe warning there about taking into your own hands to divorce i appreciate my parents when i was growing up 
um, said to me on numerous occasions as a, as a little boy, as, as many of my friends' parents were divorced, and some of you know what that was like as a kid, but my parents, it's the grace of God, uh, and they struggled at times in their relationship, and that was evident to my brother and me, as, as it is in all our households. But mom and dad said to my brother and me, don't worry, we will never Divorce will never, ever be discussed and will never be an option in this house. And it's true. And well over 50 years now, they've been faithful to that. And they drive each other crazy sometimes. I can say that because they're down in Virginia now. But um, they're together. What God has joined together, they and no other man has put asunder. It's for God to separate a man and a wife, husband and wife by death. No other. And so it's very, very serious. In an in a easy divorce culture like Jesus' day and in our day, the message needs to be clear that no, divorce is not an option. My father-in-law said to me when I asked him to marry Carissa, he looked at me, he said, as long as you understand, there's no back door. You enter into that relationship, that covenant relationship, you are bound to that person for life till death do us part. And so Jesus just brings up basic Bible teaching, Bible teaching that needs to be heard. Well, this is shocking because in their day, every a lot of people had the opinion that you could, especially the men, the men could easily divorce their wives in this this ungodly culture of Jesus's day, there was a true chauvinism and, and women were not so easily able to divorce their husbands. But in a culture like theirs or a culture like ours where divorce is just easy, it's common, people go to divorce so quickly, even, even those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And there is a small army of counselors out there, I'll tell you, who these days will tell you, they'll, they'll help you find a reason why divorce is legitimate and valid. But Jesus is clear because the scriptures is clear. So they say, well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Uh, first of all, Moses didn't say that. They're quoting Deuteronomy chapter 27. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you want to turn there with me, you can for just a moment, just so you can see what is given there. And of course, it's not Moses ultimately who's speaking, but this is God speaking through Moses. And Moses, through God, through Moses, was just giving instructions verse 1 when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house now even that by the way certificate of divorce that that is a kindness of God you lived in a culture where Again, in that day, a man could just send the woman packing with no certificate of divorce. So there was absolutely no clear break and so forth and so on. So God, in in mercy, allows for this 
I mean, recognizes this situation, says, okay, if there's going to be a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes married, another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. In other words, you, you can't just go from one relationship to another, to another, to another. And if this one isn't working out for you a while, then you break this one up for a while. You go over and enjoy this one and then say, oh, no, maybe we had it good and we go back to the original plan. No. God is saying no. It's, it's defilement. In other words, it's defiling the unity and the oneness and the purity that God designed in marriage. Obviously, It should be obvious, but it needs to be said in our culture that sleeping around and and sexual intimacy before marriage is still not permissible. Um, You can say God's out of touch and unrealistic all you want. Not that you want to say that, but that's what the culture wants to say. It still stands. Is there grace available for fornicators and adulterers and immoral? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. For those who have sinned sexually, I I hope so. But that there's grace available doesn't change the statute and the command, the standard. And so Jesus explains that what Moses taught, first of all, the Pharisees are twisting the words of Deuteronomy 24. That, That is not what Moses said. And Jesus gets to the point. He said to them, verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. In other words, God, in redeeming his people, had to, chose to, recognize the reality that some were going to divorce. And so he regulated divorce in such a way that it would not multiply the sin and the defilement. Okay, if you're going to divorce, you're not going to flip-flop and go in and out of the relationship. This is significant. A divorce is a solemn, irrevocable, binding agreement. Once you go into another marriage, you don't go back into the original one that you broke. It's because of hardness of heart. That's the issue, is hardness of heart. Our hardness of heart as sinners. Verse 9, then Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That's the nature of the union. The two shall become one flesh. You divorce and you go into another relationship, it's adultery. Now, Jesus does give here a, a clear exception, and there's some who, who don't accept this exception, and I, I, I confess I do not understand it because it is so plain and so clear. You just got to take Jesus at face value. Whoever divorces his wife, except, that's an exception, except for immorality. In other words, 
that there are cases in which there is a marriage in which one of the spouses is involved in sexual immorality, sexual infidelity. And in that case, divorce is permissible. Not always what should be gone to as the, the first step. Remember Matthew 18? Remember the setting? There ought to be, in God's grace, perhaps, perhaps there's repentance and there's brokenness and, the, and there's reconciliation and there's the place for forgiveness. Of course, you go there first. But the reality is there are situations in which one spouse or the other, the husband or the wife, are engaged in, in, un, in sexual immorality, infidelity, adultery. And according to Jesus, yes, that is grounds for divorce. And if according to Jesus, that is grounds for divorce, the person or the believer in this case who is divorcing their spouse because of their spouse's sexual infidelity is, is not somehow displeasing God. If Jesus says it's an exception, it really is an exception. Because actually, there are cases in which if there is a spouse who's engaged in ongoing sexual immorality, infidelity, you actually can really mess things up. Because according to scriptures, a husband and wife are responsible to come together in intimacy to express their oneness. That's not a command. That's not an option. That that is a as 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 you are able. That's a command. It's a design. And so if if the person just stays in this relationship in which the spouse is off doing whatever he's doing. You're actually, you're actually, in a sense, participating in the sexual immorality. There needs to be a break. And there are places, when, times when divorce is not only permissible, it is actually advisable. Because of a concern for purity and escaping sexual confusion and chaos and perversity and in that case that poor innocent party ought to be loved ought to be supported ought to be cherished ought to be loved by those around him or her we don't have time this morning but first corinthians 7 also lays out one other instance paul says very very clearly to those who become believers and are in a relationship, in a marriage, and, and their spouse does not want to follow Christ, does not want to be a Christian, and, and more than that, doesn't want anything to do with this new person. Because when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you suddenly don't do the things you used to do. You don't participate in the pagan rituals and the idolatrous feasts of the culture of that day. And same thing today. You don't do what you used to do. You, you don't have the same interests. And it could be, not always, but that the unbelieving spouse says, you know what? You are not the person I married, which is true. If you became, if you were not a Christian when you were married, but then you become a believer, some point in the marriage, you are not the same person. And they say, you are not the same person that I married. I'm not so sure I'm in on this. I want out. Paul says, if the unbelieving one wants to leave, let him leave. In other words, that's, that's clear language for permit and participate in that divorce. And that, again, that 
that person is innocent. They've not only not done anything wrong, they've actually obeyed a command of Scripture. And so those are two clear cases. And I understand sometimes it gets a little muddy and a little bit difficult. But it's often it's about the heart. It's not, it's not all the intricacies of the particulars. It's about the heart. For example, can I give you an example of, of how, why it's about the heart? We have all these different situations or, or there's abuse or so forth. Or My question was with abuse is how come somebody isn't calling the police and someone isn't showing up and that guy, for example, isn't going to jail? I've dealt with this, so you're seeing the passion. Do you remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18? If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. How is it that in so many evangelical churches, men or women who are abusive to their spouse, and others are starting to pick up on it, how is it that they weren't confronted? First privately, then secondly, and, and maybe, just maybe, if we obeyed Jesus' words and we confronted men in how they treat their wives poorly or like trash and so forth, and maybe if the church confronted that man and showed him the door as Jesus commands, let him be to you as a tax collector and a Gentile, remove him from the church, wow, that might make an impression. And maybe that guy would say, you know what? I'm not a Christian. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be in this relationship. In other words, it's if we fear God and obey his commandments. I'm not saying that all the intricacies will be worked out. But when we disobey God's commandments at any level, it makes a mess out of the whole thing. The problem is not the horns of the dilemma. The problem is the hardness of our hearts. That's the problem. We're not concerned and consumed with what Jesus is consumed with, pleasing God. And there are heartbreaking, heart-rending situations. And as a pastor, I have been in the middle of some of them in counseling. And I have cried and I have counseled, cried with and counseled innocent parties And I do understand. But Jesus here, his one authority is not opinion. It's not what so-and-so thinks. It's not what the practicalities of the situation warrant. It's what does the scriptures say. And divorce is not permissible except in the cases of sexual immorality, infidelity, and if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave the marriage. And in those cases, you may disagree, but if a divorce is a divorce and it is the breaking of the covenant, yes, that innocent party, that individual is free to remarry. doesn't have to. Could pray and wait for a reconciliation. But we often hang over folks. We add, I think we often add to the scriptures and put on a burden that is not there. Well, what about someone who didn't follow Jesus' teaching? <laughs> they were divorced for reasons that were not under those qualifications, and they remarried. What do they do now? 
Well, thankfully, the Bible addresses a world which is messy and full of sin and extends grace and deals with us where we are. And certainly the way to, to make things right is not to divorce your current, you know, break up your current marriage. The reality is that, that all of us bring to our relationship with the Lord a messy past. And God asks for us to work at the point where we are with what we can to please him. That's the concern. I can't go back and undo what's done. No one can. And no, if you've been divorced and remarried, no, you're not going to be perpetually in the church as a second-class citizen. You're washed. You're bought with the blood of Christ. You're loved. You're a son or daughter of the living God. And yet, those who have been divorced, you know that there are ongoing implications and complications. It's just the way it is. But what Jesus exposes here the most is the hardness of our hearts. We need to close because we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Obviously, this is a very sensitive issue, and I, I hope I've addressed some of the concerns or questions you have this morning. There's two things I, want, I would encourage you to take away. Number one, marriage between a husband and wife is a unique relationship created by God and you are bound together. So husbands and wives, wherever we're at right now in our relationship, however difficult it is, wherever we find ourselves, whatever's behind us, today the Lord is calling us to tend to our marriage vows. It's pleasing to him. Secondly, the faithfulness of a husband and wife to one another in the covenant of marriage is ultimately a picture to teach us of God's covenant love with his people. However uncomfortable we may be with God's position on divorce, we ought to be really thankful. Because no matter what, once we have been brought by faith into union with Christ, once we are part of the church, the bride of Christ, under no circumstances will God and Christ ever break that union. And we get to celebrate and remember that now. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for your faithfulness and ask your forgiveness for how consumed we are with our, ourselves and so little with your glory. Forgive us for how we often charge you wrongly that somehow because you are concerned with your glory that somehow you're indifferent to our good. What foolishness. We confess this morning that your way is good. What a world this would be if husbands loved their wives, if wives loved their husbands, if we were faithful to one another. How many children would thrive in a family if only we followed your way. 
So we recognize, oh God, if there's a problem with this issue of divorce and remarriage, it's, it's with us, it's not with you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray that we'll be more like you. We pray that we too would be moved by the one burden of pleasing you, pleasing the Father. And we thank you that you've revealed what's pleasing to you in your word. Help us to know it and to do it. In your name we ask, amen.